We give thanks to God for bread. Our voices rise in song together as our joyful prayer is said. Baruch Adonai, Eloheinu melech haolam, Amotzi lechemin haaretz. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from out of the earth. Amen. Baruch atah Adonai Eloheinu, Melech HaOlam, Borei Pri Hagafen. Amen. Blessed art thou, Lord our God, King of the universe, who creates the fruit of the vine. Amen. Baruch Shem, Kavor Mahuto, Mahuto Leolam, Leolam Bayet. Baruch Shem, Kavor Mahuto, Mahuto Leolam, Leolam Bayet. Shema Sayel, Shema Sayel, Adonai, Eloheinu. Shema Sayel, Shema Sayel, Adonai, Eloheinu. Yes, I don't God, I don't know, 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 Dear Heavenly Father, on this Sabbath day, we just thank you for the opportunity to come together. We thank you for the opportunity to praise your name, to study your word, Father, to lift our voices and our hearts in prayer to you, and to find peace, hope, and rest under your wings. Light of the world. Step down into darkness. Open my eyes, let me see beauty that makes this heart adore you. Hope of a life spent with Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God, you're all together lovely, you're all together worthy, all together wonderful to King of all days, 
Oh, so highly exalted, glorious in heaven above. Humbly you came to the earth to create it. All for my sake became poor. Here I am to worship. Here I am to bow down. Here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together lovely, all together worthy, all together wonderful to me. And I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. I'll never know how much it costs to see my sin upon that cross. Here I am to worship, here I am to bow down, here I am to say that you're my God. You're all together lovely, all together worthy, all together wonderful to me. I'll walk close 
closer now on the highway through the darkest night will you own my end
Shabbat Shalom, everyone. Um, if you would, turn in your Bibles to Genesis 41. Our portion uh, this uh, Shabbat is entitled Miketz. This uh, portion is the middle portion of, of actually three portions. Last Shabbat, we introduced the story of Joseph. Joseph became the central character in our story of the fathers, and now it continues on. And then we have one more portion, which will be next Shabbat, which will talk about how uh, Judah and the brethren are uh, reunited with Joseph, who is now down in Egypt. And Joseph is in Egypt at this point, and so we take up our story at the part where he, Joseph is in prison. Uh, and he, if you do, let's just recount for a moment, this guy's had a tough life. I mean, as a young boy, he, he came up, his, his mother was one of the last to have the son, so he was a younger son from the others. The other brothers uh, didn't really care for him very much. In fact, they envied him. Uh, his father Jacob had showed great favor to him, if you recall, made him the coat of many colors. Uh, the other brothers resented that, and there came a day when they, he came to check on them because his father had sent him to do so, that they cast him into a pit, sold him into slavery, and in the last week's portion it was all about how he ended up in Egypt as a slave, worked for Potiphar, the captain of the guard, but then was falsely accused uh, of, of something with his wife, and he ends up in prison. And so he's down in prison, and he's got a miserable life, you know, essentially at this point. Now, mind you, this miserable life, it was...
preceded with God giving him a couple of dreams. And the dreams that God gave to uh, Joseph were incredible dreams. They, they were dreams about one day all his brothers would bow down to him. Even his father and his mother, the mothers, would bow down to him. And there was great resentment with regard to that. You would think that he wouldn't have believed in those dreams very much because what followed after he shared about the dreams was just trouble after trouble after trouble uh, to where it brings us to this portion. But those dreams are going to come back up again uh, in this portion as we read. Let me uh, take you now to Genesis 41. Specifically, what will be the turn of where suddenly good things are going to now going to start happening for Joseph? He's going to be brought out of prison uh, over these events, and he's going to be put in charge of Egypt. He's going to become the viceroy, uh, the number two man in charge of Egypt as a result of this. And that's quite an elevation to come from prison to being number two in Egypt. So let's read what the story shares with us about it. Uh, chapter 41, beginning of verse 1, it says, Now it happened at the end of two full years that Pharaoh had a dream, and behold, he was standing by the Nile. And lo, from the Nile there came up seven cows, sleek and fat, and they grazed in the marsh grass. And then, behold, seven other cows came up after them from the Nile, ugly and gaunt. And they stood by the other cows on the bank of the Nile. And the ugly and the gaunt cows ate up the seven sleek and fat cows. Then Pharaoh awoke. And he fell asleep and dreamed a second time. And behold, seven ears of grain came up in a single stalk, plump and good. Then, behold, seven ears, thin and scorched by the east wind, sprouted up after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven plump and full ears. Then Pharaoh awoke, and behold, it was a dream. Now it came about in the morning that his spirit was troubled. So he sent and called for all the magicians of Egypt and all of its wise men, and Pharaoh told them his dreams. But there was no one who could interpret them to Pharaoh. Then the chief cupbearer spoke to Pharaoh, saying, I would make mention today of my own offenses. Pharaoh was furious with his servants, and he put me in confinement in the house of the captain of the bodyguard, both me and the chief baker. And we had dreamed on the same night. And he and I, each of us dreamed according to the interpretation of his own dream. Now a Hebrew youth was with us there, a servant of the captain of the garden. We related them to him, and he interpreted our dreams for us. To each one he interpreted according to his own dream. And it came about just as he interpreted for us, so it happened. He restored me to my office, but he hanged him. Then Pharaoh sent and called for Joseph. And they hurriedly brought him out of the dungeon. And when he had shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came to Pharaoh and Pharaoh said to Joseph, I have had a dream, but no one can interpret it. And I have heard it said about you that when you hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph then answered Pharaoh, saying, It is not me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, and in my dream, uh, behold, I saw standing on the bank of the Nile. And then at that point, he repeats the dream for Joseph to see and hear about. And what follows is Joseph gives the interpretation of the dream. And he explains that, that the cows 
and the ears of corn, they're really the same dream. They're one and the same. It's just it's been being repeated to you in a slightly different symbol. And that what that means is that this is God's shown to Pharaoh what's about to happen and that God has determined that it will happen very soon uh, by the repetition of it. If you recall the basic Torah principles, except on the evidence of two or three, you cannot establish the truth. And because God gave the dream twice in different symbols, he's establishing it is true and it will happen. And Joseph understands these principles and gives interpretation to Pharaoh based on that. To the extent that he interprets the dream to mean there's going to be seven years of plenty, seven years of abundance in Egypt for food, but then the following seven years will essentially eat up all of the abundance uh, of those previous seven years. And there will be seven years of famine uh, before Egypt is able to recover from this period of time. And the conclusion from this is that Pharaoh should appoint uh, a certain person to oversee the land of Israel for the gathering of the abundance, storing the abundance, and then obviously the distribution of the food during the seven years of the famine. And Pharaoh immediately concludes that the right guy for that job would be Joseph himself, who understood the implications of the dream, already had a plan in place on how to address it, and so all of a sudden the problem is presented to Pharaoh and the solution is presented to Pharaoh, and it's clear that God is behind the whole thing. God is behind this in terms of what's going to be happening with Egypt and the world. Uh, God is behind this in terms of what he wants to do with Joseph's life, the destiny that he has for Joseph's life. And that this is going to be the mechanism to not only fulfill uh, Pharaoh's dreams, this is going to be the mechanism that will be fulfilling Joseph's dreams as well. Um, when you bring up the subject of dreams... And let's just talk about that for a moment. Uh, God coming to you in a dream is he's coming and speaking to you in, in your subconscious elements of your, of your mind. And uh, psychologists tell us that the dream that you have when you wake up, you know, because everybody dreams. And in fact, it's a natural thing for your brain to, to dream, um, you know, at various things. It can be stimulus. It can be certain things that are bothering you. There could be issues in your life that are unsettling to you. And your subconscious is somehow trying to reconcile them, trying to deal with them. And so it's natural for you to dream. But what shouldn't happen in the course of that is it shouldn't come in the form of these kinds of dreams where there's clear purpose, they're restated, you know, it's a recurring dream kind of things. Most people have a random dream of a dream and we get a couple of Torah definitions about spiritual dreams here, not the least of which is that it has to be coming to you on a repeated fashion. In other words, it's not just a dream, it's a dream and then it's repeated. It could be repeated over a course of multiple times you sleep, different nights, uh, whatever the case may be. It, it, it's it's got to be a recurring dream if it's one that comes from the Lord. If you have a single dream um, and it's very dramatic for you, and 
and it, you really remember it, there are two things that probably took place. One, it was something going through your brain in a matter of moments or minutes before you awoke. That's the reason why you retain it in your memory. And two, it was probably too much garlic in the spaghetti sauce the night before, if you understand what I'm saying here. Because your stomach can agitate you and it can cause brain to be very active um, in the process. But the dreams that we're talking about here, the, the, what the scripture is presenting to here is a very direct and very dramatic thing. Just as direct as it was for Joseph when he had his earlier dreams, so Pharaoh is being given dreams by God. There is also another um, Jewish teaching um, which I've always found uh, interesting. I don't know that I can say it's 100% the truth, but it, it's an interesting point of view, and I'll share it with you. Um, I believe, and this is the, the expression, is that if we were really uh, tuned into the Lord, if we were really walking before the Lord, then we should be able to, in our conscious body, conscious mind, have a conversation with the Lord and communicate with him and he can communicate. There's nothing that blocks God from being able to communicate with us. And there's no reason why we in faith can't just speak out. and do it. I mean, we do it in prayer. We just speak right out. Uh, however, the, the Jewish teaching on this is that we uh, mortals uh, who are walking around with the Lord, sometimes we don't pick up on the subtle clues of the way the Spirit of God is trying to speak to us. Because one of the characterizations about God is that He doesn't come and shock you and alarm you. He doesn't come and speak like at Mount Sinai to us anymore like that. Because we asked Him not to, by the way. That rather He comes in a small, quiet voice. And He doesn't go through a big, elaborate thing. He just speaks real softly and, and says something to us. And there's a tendency, this is, this is, again, from the Hebrew point of view, there's a tendency that we, we ignore that, we don't pay attention to that, and we just press on with our lives. We press on with whatever we were doing during the day. That the Lord will kind of gently say something to us, and we, we really don't hear it. Um, and that what God has to do occasionally, if he's trying to get a message over to you, is sometimes he has to come to you in the form of a vision or a dream. He has to come to you when you're not occupied with everything else that's going on in your life or thinking about everything else going on in your life. And so he'll use this methodology to speak to you, as, say, an, in a dream. So it is the point of view that's being made here is it's not a glorious uh, thing, and you should not be claiming that there's some sort of honor that has been bestowed upon you because God would come talk to you in a dream. Uh, the, the idea is, well, if God's going to have to talk to you in a dream, it's because you weren't paying attention during the daytime. You weren't sensing the things that God was showing you. You didn't hear the small, quiet voice. He had to come to you in the form of a dream to explain certain things to you. That is one particular Hebraic expression when we regard the whole subject of dreams and spiritual dreams in particular. Now, like I said, I don't know that I have, uh, that I fully agree with that. I do agree with being humble um, that if God does use you and God does share some information with you, 
uh, that would have future implications that you should remain humble. This is not a reason to become haughty or proud. Uh, this is not a reason for you to suddenly lord it over others. Well, I've, I have some insight or, uh, you know, God has spoken to me so forth. That the, the, the real man of God is going to be humble uh, about all of those things and to make sure that you're not usurping the glory of God in any way, shape, or form. And quite honestly, let me go ahead and just tell you this. You really don't want to know the future. You don't want God to come down and tell you what the future is. It, it's a very burdening subject. It causes difficulty. People can't process it. Sometimes you're the messenger for it. They want to shoot the messenger and they don't want to listen to the message. Um, it's, it's not that much fun. It's not at all that it's cracked up to be. Um, and so it's, a per, it's really a very serious business. Uh, with the Lord and requires some wisdom and maturity uh, to really operate in these kinds of realms. Um, I, I will tell you that uh, uh, in my own personal experience, I hear this portion, I relate to this in a personal sort of way because um, in my own personal testimony, I had a dream when I was a, a young boy, a very dramatic dream for me. It had a, a second element that seemed to confirm for me. It was very dramatic. Very, I still remember it today. I remember the images of the dream. I remember all of the activity of the dream. And it has been a guide uh, for me that has helped to answer for me, what in the world am I doing with my life? You know, what, what is my destiny uh, in the Lord? What's my purpose? Uh, and in the time frame that I'm, and it's, it has to do with the ministry that I'm in at the moment. And it's been a source of uh, encouragement and to build my confidence uh, and affirmation that I'm on the path God wants me to be on. When I read the story of Joseph and him being given these dreams, that's, that's what I see was given to Joseph. He, he was given kind of a destiny and, and he, was, he was following it out. He remained faithful to it. Even when bad times were happening, he still believed that God would fulfill you know, the, the, his destiny for him. The day finally came when that destiny became a reality. And he uh, was able to go forward. Um, Joseph interprets and explains to Pharaoh this dream. I want, to, I want to now repeat those words. We already know what the dream is, but now we're going to listen to how Joseph explains to Pharaoh about the dream. And there's some key principles that come out of this that really speak to this whole subject of dreams, future things that God would tell us about, and so forth, that is going to pave its way throughout the rest of the scripture, these key principles. So we're looking at some really midrashic key principles of Torah instruction about this subject. So let me begin again at verse 17. And let me read to you. This is the conversation now between Pharaoh and Joseph. And now we're going to see Joseph uh, bring out some aspects of his dream. So Pharaoh spoke to Joseph, In my dream, behold, I was standing at the bank of the Nile, and behold, seven cows, fat and sleek, came up out of the Nile. They grazed in the marsh grass. And lo, seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and gaunt, such as I have never seen for ugliness in all of the land of Egypt. And the lean and ugly cows ate up the first seven fat cows. Yet when they had devoured them, it could not be detected that they had devoured them, for they were just as ugly as before. Then I awoke. 
I saw also in my dream, and behold, seven ears, full of good, came up on a single stalk, and lo, seven ears withered, thin, and scorched, for the east wind sprouted up after them, and then the ears swallowed the seven good ears. Then I told it to the magicians, but there was none, no one who could explain it to me. Now Joseph said to Pharaoh, Pharaoh's dreams are one and the same. God has told to Pharaoh what he is about to do. The seven good cows are seven years. The seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one and the same. And the seven lean and ugly cows that came up after them are seven years. And they and the seven thin ears scorched by the east wind shall be seven years of famine. And it is as I have spoken to Pharaoh. God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. Behold, the seven years of great abundance are coming in all of the land of Egypt, and after them seven years of famine will come, and all the abundance will be forgotten in the land of Egypt, and the famine will ravage the land. So the abundance will be unknown in the land because of the subsequent famine, for it will be very severe. Now, as for the repeating of the dream to Pharaoh twice, it means that the matter is determined by God, and God will quickly bring it about. And now let Pharaoh look for a man, discerning and wise, and set him over the land of Egypt. Let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land, and let him exact a fifth of the produce of the land in Egypt in these seven years of abundance. Then let them gather all the food of these good years that are coming and store up the grain for food in the cities under Pharaoh's authority and let them guard it. And let the food become a reserve for the land for the seven years of famine which will occur in the land of Egypt, so that the land may not perish during the famine. Now the proposal seemed good to Pharaoh and to all of his servants. The, again, Joseph is not only has interpreted the dream, but he has actually laid out a structure of what God's purpose is here. And he's explaining to Pharaoh... Here's, God gave you a dream. Now, here's what that means. Here, here's the implications of what watersheds from that. From that, we can determine there are four key things that happen anytime God gives you a future thing for you to consider. In this case, it was the future for Pharaoh to understand how to manage Egypt for the issues they were facing. How to, what to do during the seven years of good uh, and plenty, and how to prepare for the seven years of the difficult years of the famine. Number one, uh, God has a plan. Right off the bat. It, hey, you know, that's what we can extrapolate from this. Every once in a while, God has a plan on something that's in the future. Uh, number two, God explains his plan. He shares uh, the plan. He says, I have a plan. This is what's going to be happening. And then we recognize it is a plan from God. By the way, if it's a plan from a man, that would be different, wouldn't it? But if it's a plan from God, you've got to get, treat it much more seriously. And so his explanation must be treated much more seriously. 
Number three, God will determine or establish the elements of the plan. In other words, the, there's always pieces that come together. There's parts that fit into it. And you need to find and understand these parts that fit into it so that you know how the plan's going to be carried out, so you understand the mechanics of the plan and to be a part of it. Finally, number four, God will carry out the plan. He actually will do it. There's will. The, the will of God is what is involved here. These four principles can be taken elsewhere in Scripture and deal with any other major prophetic event that we'll find discussed in the Scripture. And you'll find the elements of this, of this four points. This is how God operates. When God wants to share with us what is going on, these are the reasons. This is the steps that he's going to follow. And for us to be wise like Joseph, that's what we want to do. We want to go in and discern what are those four steps? What are those four things that God is doing here so that we can understand his plan? So let's take a, let's take a moment now. I'm just going to take the Torah portion. I'm just going to sit right there. I'm going to come back to it. But let's talk about you and me where we're at. We're at the end of the ages. We've all heard that uh, God has a plan for the end of the ages. Uh, this plan is that uh, he's going to be gathering the scattered tribes of Israel. He's going to reestablish the land of Israel. That he is going to be gathering up his redeemed. He's going to be gathering up those that belong to him, his servants. That he's going to be carrying out a series of judgments. Uh, against all of his enemies, and ultimately the, that judgments lead to the final judgment, the day of the Lord, uh, the whole reconciliation of God to the entire world, and on the heels of that, he's going to establish his kingdom, and the redeemed that were gathered out of all of that mess, they'll be the kingdom. So we all know, we can, sometimes we super summarize this, we say, well, it's the second coming. It's the greater exodus. It's the great tribulation. It's the day of the Lord. It's all these scenarios. Now, unlike Joseph's situation where he just had a dream from Pharaoh and had two versions of it, two sets of symbols, for us, it is like we have got the whole entire buffet of evidences of many times of God stating, this is, I have a plan. I have a plan for the end of the ages. And, and we have multitudes of, of where we've been told about the plan repeatedly. We've been told about the plan from Moses. We've been told about it from the prophets of Israel. The Messiah has come. He's told about it. The apostles they've written, they've told us about it. Uh, finally, God came and to the apostle John and gave him a vision called the book of Revelation to tell us all about it. And there's just a ton of details and many elements of this to take into account. Um, on the third point, God will establish. He, he has laid out for us the things that will lead into it. So one of the things that I, when I talk about the end times, one of the things that I really focus in on with the brethren is, okay, if we're here and this is the end times, we're the last generation, if, if, if this is the time for God's plan, then according to God's plan, there's some key elements that we're watching and we're paying attention to 
so that fit into the plan so that we'll be prepared and ready. Namely, not the least of which, is the key stein, which is the start of the Great Tribulation. The famous prophecy of the abomination of desolation by the prophet Daniel that Yeshua specifically referred to when he was answering the question of the disciples, what will be the sign of the end? What will be the sign of your coming? And he laid out the specific elements that feed into the start of the Great Tribulation and then said, and immediately after the days of the Tribulation, then you'll see the sign of the Son of Man. And that's when we come and, and, and all of the things that will happen in that regard. And then... The final point is God will bring it about. Uh, let us be completely honest here for a moment. Um, throughout the ages uh, of us in this age and generations, uh, we've all heard about this plan. And the previous generations heard about the plan. And we all want the Lord to come. We're all excited about the Lord coming. It would sure solve a lot of problems we have down here. It would solve a lot of problems that I have with regard to paying my bills. It would solve a lot of problems with regard to medical issues that I'm having to struggle with as the older I get. Our friends, our, our family members, the issues that happen there, some of them are heartbreaking, some of them are tragic, some of them are difficult. If the Lord were to come back and establish His kingdom, we all know that all of those issues that we have in our life, they would be much better. They solved it would be, a, a, to be in the kingdom would be a place of no more tears and it would be wonderful and we're not in need and, and all of those kinds of things. And at the same time, the whole subject of what we're having to go through here is not the great tribulation. It is not a delightful subject. It is not fun. It is not something that you would in your right mind would willingly want to do and be a part of it. Um, had Joseph been told in advance, along with his dreams, all of the different things that were going to happen to him, the trauma that he was going to face, the rejection of his brothers, being sold as a slave, falsely accused, imprisoned, and in prison for a couple of years, all of that trauma, just so he gets to be in charge of the world and his brothers will bow down to him, I'm not sure he'd have taken the deal. Seriously. He probably would have said, no, nah, no, nah, that, that's way too much. I, you know, uh, let's find somebody else to do this or whatever kind of thing. And um, each of us, you know, struggle to a certain extent in fact, we have lots of brethren who struggle with the, I don't want to be a part of the prophecies that talk about of the Great Tribulation. As I've shared with audiences in the past, there's a lot of brethren who hold to what we call the pre-tribulation rapture, the sudden imminent return of God, and they always make it pre-trib. In other words, this happens before the tribulation, and the idea in mind is that before all the bad stuff happens to the world, God comes down and zaps us up. We get the escalator right up. Uh, to God's presence and, and everything is hunky-dory and great for us and everything is trash and terrible for what goes on in the world. And by the way, if, if that was what God's plan was, that's a wonderful plan. I like that plan. I would love to see that plan. The problem is, though, that's a false hope. 
we're not paying attention to what the prophecy said. We're not paying attention to what, 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 it, what he really said. He has a plan. He's laid out the elements of the plan. We cannot go around changing his plan. We can't pick and choose out of his plan just the best parts for us and leave the rest for everybody else. Uh, that's not how this works. Uh, you know, um, you know, and Joseph is saying very explicitly here, let me, and, and by the way, the dream explicitly says this, you know them ugly cows? You know the, the, them dried up, withered uh, the stalks of corn? I want you to understand something. After they eat up all the abundance of the previous seven years, they're still ugly. They're still terrible. That this doesn't solve the problem for them in that regard. It's terrible what's going to be happening. Uh, there, there's no redeeming value. Let me just tell you, the Great Tribulation, it'll be terrible. It'll get worse day by day. In fact, let me just hint to you, it's bad enough having the Great Tribulation and everybody hates you and trying to kill you, and disease, and war, and famine, and you're struggling to find food and, and to deal with that, and having to deal with all of your feelings, fears, concerns about all of that, but in the last five months, God just makes the whole place dark. He turns the lights out. You know, has an asteroid strike the earth. Deep abyss scenario builds up debris and smoke up into the sky. Darkens the sun, moon, and the stars. Oh, just to add to the fun. Uh, not my idea of fun. It sounds terrible. And uh, it, it gets worse. Uh, you know, it's terrible you know, what has transpired. So there's no, quote, redeeming value of, of having to get through it. It's just a case that you got to survive it. And that's what Joseph has shared with Egypt and with Pharaoh. Look, when it comes to these last seven years, the best you can do is survive it. There's not going to be any gain, you know, out of that. It's, we're, we're, we're trying to position ourselves right now it. Let me just say to you, brethren, the position that we're in right now is very similar. Now, I know at the end we have the kingdom. Praise God. Okay? But there's not, you can't redeem those coins yet for that. You can't take that value and turn that into something for you. That is in the future. That is our hope and so forth. But right now, what you're faced with is this is just before the Great Tribulation. And what do we do and how do we prepare for that? And Yeshua speaks to that. But as I said, a lot of people struggle with that. They don't want to deal with that. Even the people who believe it. How much of my resources am I going to use you know, for that? Now I want you to take note of the practical part of what Joseph says to tell Pharaoh to do. He specifically says... Verse 34, let Pharaoh take action to appoint overseers in charge of the land and let them exact a fifth of the produce of the land of Egypt in the seven years of abundance. So we're going to have an abundant year. We're only going to consume four-fifths of it. We're going to take one-fifth or 20% and we're going to store it. Now, what that would mean in the year of abundance, by taking one-fifth away, that means it'll almost seem like a normal year. 
It's not a banner year. It's like a normal year during the seven years. Even though it's a year of abundance and the harvest, it's like a regular, normal. Rich off of this deal, but it is an abundant year. But we're making it. We're, we're doing it. It's fine. We're trading off the years of preparation to prepare for the years of need. Okay? So the logic is this. At the, at the end of the seven years of plenty, how much do we really have stored up? Well, we have like one super abundance year and another 40% of a, an abundant year. And essentially what Joseph's plan is that we're going to take essentially one-fifth of the abundant year and that's what we'll live on for a whole year of want. So we'll only have one-fifth of what we had in an abundant year, and that's the part that we'll consume. Now, we don't know the, the more details than this, other than this plan worked. Joseph, <laughs> pardon me. Joseph did have sufficient to distribute to the needs of the people, not only the needs of the people in Egypt, but those that came from the other nations that needed. Um, he was able to distribute that smaller amount and it was sufficient to meet the need. And it's a, it's a good principle that explains to us that, you know, if, if we had to live on something less than what we live on, you know we could do it. I mean, we wouldn't like it. But we could do it, you know, if we were forced to. And by the way, the, the, the way I know that is because I know there's a lot of people that only get a Social Security check and they still survive. And I mean, it is survival. It's not, it's not glorious. It's not spectacular. It's, it is survival. Um, and so we know people can do with less and still get by. And essentially, this plan, this judgment that was coming upon Egypt, uh, Joseph understood that. And Joseph was going to be the man who would manage that. Now, the reason why this should be of such noteworthy to us, this story and how it fits into the end of the age, is let me go back to one of the other themes that we've talked about before with Joseph. Joseph is a type for the Messiah. He's a, an example, one of the most powerful early examples in the fathers to explain the work of the Messiah. Joseph was dispatched by his father. Jacob, to see to the welfare of the brethren and the flock. And in last week's Torah portion, we talked about how it was sent to see to the Aleph Tav flock, God's flock. And the Messiah is sent to the Aleph Tav flock. The flock belongs to the Messiah, all of us. And he has been sent to see to the welfare and the deliverance of it. And the Messiah has come and done the work of the Lamb of God, so that we might have redemption, so that we could be delivered in our sins against God and the judgments that are against us. And on top of that, he has set in motion a plan for us to be part of his flock, to walk with him, for him to be the great shepherd for us, and that will lead ultimately to the kingdom where he will be the king of kings and we will be his servants and we will live forever. All of this wonderful stuff. And Joseph is like unto that. 
Joseph is one of his, the brothers. Yeshua is one of the countrymen raised up. Joseph was rejected by his brother, by his brethren. Uh, Joseph ended up being cast into a pit. Oh, by the way, they took Yeshua's body and they put him in a pit. That pit. Yeshua came up out of that pit by a set of weird set of circumstances we call the resurrection. And then Joseph went away for a long time and his brothers didn't see him. Didn't really know where he went, didn't really care where he went. They knew he hadn't died, but they just really didn't care. And they acted like he had died. And the same thing is of Yeshua. The Jewish people and the rabbis know that Yeshua was resurrected from the grave. I don't know if you realize that or not, but in the Talmud and so forth, they recognize he really was resurrected. But he went away, and who knows where he went? Who cares? It's, we're going to treat it like he's dead and gone and so forth. And, and, uh, but I can tell you, I've been in conferences and had conversations with the rabbis. They know the evidence is very clear from impeccable sources that Yeshua was resurrected. He did come out. He wasn't permanently dead, so to speak. He's somewhere. But we don't know where he went. We don't care. Well, when the brethren show up, and that's what our portion goes on to tell us about, when they are in need for food, they're going to be making a trip down to Egypt because the word is out that Egypt has food. And Jacob is going to send them now down to buy food for them. And they are going to be confronted by their brother. But as you know, and then this story alludes to, Joseph doesn't reveal himself immediately. There's this period of time where Joseph, and he's not trying to be coy, He's trying to help his brothers come to terms with certain things. He's, he's trying to get them to understand that the, the way they treated him was inappropriate and that they needed to correct that behavior and they shouldn't be treating any brother that way, uh, that they should be caring for one another. Well, by the way, what's Yeshua's last instruction to us at the Passover, his final instructions about biting him and loving one another? The same same motivations that we interpret from Joseph about dealing with his brother. That, that's what Yeshua is doing. So why didn't Yeshua just immediately come back? After he was risen from the grave and he's at the right hand of the Almighty, he can be in charge of everything. Why isn't he in a big rush to get back here? We could ask the same question. Why didn't Joseph reveal himself to his brethren as soon as he was in charge? Because there was another plan at work. A plan that was to the benefit of the brethren, but they don't understand that part yet. And there's a plan at work with us in the story of redemption that is to the benefit of a whole lot of people in this world, regardless of whether they understand it or not. Now, you and I, as we observe the story of Joseph and we see the plan, we see the mechanisms to it, we... And draw the parallels to what the Messiah has done. There's a part in us, the spirit kicks up in us and says, oh, we should take application. We should be wise about this. In other words, when we see God lay a plan out like this, that we should, we should tune into his plan and be wise and receive what he says and, and believe in him. And know he'll carry the plan out. 
and not be discouraged or disheartened by anything that we may see in front of us or any delay in any way, shape, or form. That God is working the issues out to the benefit of, of His kingdom, to the benefit of all of His servants. And you're one of the last servants that's going to you know, get on the train of redemption here. You want him to work that whole plan out so that you can, you can get on board, okay? And so previous generations have wanted to have the Lord come and got disappointed about it. I can tell you why the Lord didn't come back in their previous generations. It was for you and me. Because we're in this last generation, and we, we got to be part of the redemption as a result. And thank goodness the Lord didn't come back in the previous generation or the generations before that. Are you with me on that one? I mean, I'm, that, that's where my heart and soul's at. Now, how far is he going to go further beyond me and our generation? How, how much farther? We already know he's long-suffering and doesn't want to see any that are lost. But yet at the same time, we're reconciling that's where God's intent is at. At the same time, we're looking at the elements of the plan. And looking at the elements of the plan, it seems to suggest that there are certain events that are now coming in and going to take over the effect of things. You all have heard of the Great Tribulation. Many people believe it's seven years. I don't believe it's seven years. I don't believe there's a seven-year tribulation. I believe there's a three-and-a-half-year great tribulation that the Messiah spoke of. But some people think there's a seven-year thing. It, even if you believe there's a seven-year thing, that should really catch your attention because that ties right back to this story. Remember? Seven years of plenty, seven years of famine. And, and it, we definitely know the great tribulation is like the famine, the bad part. And that's the way God has planned things, and God has planned things in the future. And, by the way, there weren't eight years of plenty. There were seven years of plenty, and it went right into the famine, just like God told them. God's carry out. I guarantee you, the plan that God has for us at the end of the ages, He is going to do it. The key question for us is trying to understand the plan correctly. It's not that there isn't a plan and not that God won't follow it through. It's, it's more of a case of can we understand the plan? Now, that's been the goal. That's been the goal of prophecy teachers and students uh, for many years. Trying to understand the plan. We glean every little detail. Well, here's, here's the problem on, on solving that big problem. If it was just a dream to interpret from Pharaoh, we'd be all home free just like Joseph. The problem is that this subject about the plan for the end of the ages is the most extensive subject of prophecy throughout the entire scripture. The plan has been laid out for us literally over the course of 6,000 years. And there is details and nuances and allegories and, and all laced through the whole thing because it is a grand plan. It is an incredible thing that the Messiah is going to be doing at the end of the ages. And personally, I believe the reason why that uh, we have the greatest number of people alive today on the earth that have ever lived in the entire history of the world, not only is it a fulfillment of the prophecy that said in the last generation there would be many of us, but he's also assembling the greatest, the greatest audience of people in the entire history of the planet to be witnesses to this grand event. 
things that the scriptures say angels and prophets have desired to see the people in the last generation are going to have front row 50 yard line seats for this. By the way, those are real good seats at a football stadium. Real good seats. And we're going to be right there, right there in the midst of it. And not only that, we're not just going to be spectators, we're going to be participants in this incredible plan that God is. We're going to be on the field with God while this is all taking place. Um, the rest of our Torah study, uh, carrying through how Joseph is a type for the Messiah, doing the work of being sent by the Father to the salvation and deliverance of the flock and to his people and his family. And by the way, uh, you do know that it was 70 souls who go down into Egypt, but it will turn out to be millions that will come up out of Egypt uh, the four generations later to become the children of Israel when God establishes a covenant. So we see the early beginnings that turns into much greater things uh, for us. The, um, I want you, uh, in my last few minutes, I, I want to uh, take note of how Joseph's brethren try to deal with this. Um, you recall now that Joseph's brethren cast Joseph in a pit. And they didn't want him around anymore. And there was a, a quite to do, last week's Torah portion dealt with this, um, about how Reuben, he thought maybe he'd try to save him later. Judah was the one who said, well, let's sell him. And Simeon was saying, let's kill him. And, and I mean, you had a whole variety of different ideas going into what was going to happen to Joseph. And in the course of that, he was extremely distraught. I mean, he's in a pit. And by the way, these pits, you know, Dothan, this is well known. You can go to the land of Israel and check this out for yourself. When they're not full of water after the rainy season, they get snakes in them. They're snake pits. Um, you get thrown down there and there in a pit and there's a bunch of snakes running around. You know that, that movie uh, Harrison Ford does, uh, The Raiders of the Lost Ark? You remember that one scene where he's laying there and he's looking down into the thing and he looks back and he's snakes, snakes, I hate snakes. That's me. I, that, 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 that was a moment that they captured, I think, not only me, but a whole bunch of people. I hate snakes. I'll kill a snake. I don't care what kind of snake it is. I'll kill it. I, I don't want snakes around me. Uh, anything to do with the idea of Joseph being cast down, me being cast down into a pit that has a bunch of snakes in it, um, I would, I'd be probably very vocal about that. And the guys that threw me in the pit, they would be hearing me screaming and yelling and, and so forth. Um, and I think that's what happened to uh, Joseph, and I think that's what the brethren heard. In fact, so severe was the screaming and yelling coming out of the pit, they actually positioned themselves away from the pit so they wouldn't have to listen to it. Now, they consciously were that unkind, not only to hate their brother, to cast him into the pit to begin with, um, to do harm to him, but even in his cries of despair, there was no empathy whatsoever for him at all. And they even positioned themselves away. And in fact, when it came time to sell him and pull him out of the pit, uh, the brothers didn't pull him out of the pit. It was the Midianite traders, the ones that pulled him out of the pit and right into the hands of captivity. So there was no relief from it whatsoever. And 
This is in the background and in the thinking of the brothers. Because when they go before Joseph, whom they don't know, and Joseph treats them in a harsh manner, a very deliberate manner, challenging who are they. We, I think you're spies. I think you've come to spy out the land. And they're trying to say, no, 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 we're not spies. We're not my. You do understand their lives are hanging in the balance, you know. And so we're not spies. And we hear this phrase, and I want you to take note of this. In uh, chapter 42, let me read this to you, verse 29. And when they came to their father Jacob in the land of Canaan, they told him all that had happened to them, and saying that the man, the Lord of the land, spoke harshly with us and took us for spies of the, of the country. But we said to him, We are honest men. We are not spies. We are twelve brothers, sons of one father, one who is more. And the youngest is with our father today in the land of Canaan. And the man, the Lord of the land, he said to us, By this I shall know that you are honest men. Leave one of your brothers here for us. We take grain back for your households. Verse 34, but bring your youngest brother to me that I may know that you are not spies, but honest men. The reason why that's kind of noteworthy is, is that the brothers are trying to take the posture of we're honest men. In other words, what they're saying is we're good guys. You should not be accusing us of in any way, shape or form of being bad guys whatsoever in this whole matter. Let me tell you something. Um, that is how the Jewish people regard themselves with regard to the issue of Yeshua. Think about this for a moment. If you were to sit down and confront my Jewish brethren, they would say, we're honest men. We're good men. We're holy men. What, what, do, you, what do you mean, you know, that, 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 you know, this Yeshua thing? No, 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 that, you, you've got that all wrong. We're, we're good men. We're honest men here. And so the stage is set, just like when Joseph is going to be confronting his brethren. And by the way, in next week's portion, Joseph will reveal himself to them finally. Um, the, the conflict is the, the men think they haven't done anything wrong. In fact, let me go advance the story just a little bit. When they got the food the second time, they brought Benjamin back. Well, Joseph sets it up where they are all getting ready to go home free. Benjamin, Simeon, all the brothers. And they've gotten all of their food they needed. They didn't cost them anything. I mean, this was, this was great. They won the lottery there in Egypt. You know what I'm saying? I mean, it was great. And then he plants his cup in their sack. Who does, whose sack does he plant it in? Benjamin's. His biological brother, the one that Judah has pledged to protect. And he's measuring out, will the brethren stand up for their brethren? Will the brethren care for one another? And so forth. They've been doing all this other stuff. They've been going around telling everybody, oh, we're honest men. Yet at the same time, their history is they've already cast off one of their brothers and tried to kill him. That, by the way, that's not the definition of honest men. But that's the, that's the testimony. That's what they've been saying of themselves. That's what they're trying to convince Joseph of. But Joseph knows differently because he's standing right there in front of them. So he puts them to the test with regard to Benjamin. How well will you defend Benjamin? 
who is my brother, by the way, Joseph's brother, and let's see if you're willing to go home and forget him. Now, if they're doing the same thing they did before, the way they treated Joseph, they'd say, hey, fine, you know, okay, sorry, I'll go back, we'll tell Dad, hey, you know, we told you that one story about Joseph, now we got another story to tell you. By the way, the other one was false, this one actually is true. And we'll just tell Jacob another story. Or they could find out if there was a change of heart. If God had turned things around. My friends, um, the same stage has been set for us. We would all like to go around saying we're honest men. But the reality is, and let me speak to my messianic brethren for a moment. The reality within the Messianic movement, we are one despicable bunch when it comes to how we treat each other. In fact, one of the things I offer is counsel. Whenever brethren contact me about all the hassles that are happening in various fellowships and congregations and difficulties of people not getting along with each other and this person has been falsely accused and this person, you know, and, and so forth. You know what I always say to the leaders and those that contact me? I said... You mean to tell me that your brethren are behaving just like Joseph's brethren still? Because that's what we're doing. In the present messianic day that we live, where we're at this mess modern messianic movement, extending on for the last 35, 40 years, we behave just like Joseph's brethren. We go around saying we're honest men. Yet we have a history and we continue to perpetuate not loving our brethren, not caring for one another, falsely accusing. And we'd rather throw each other in pits and well, let Pharaoh go ahead and keep him. You know, let's go home. That's our basic attitude for it. I have news for you. Uh, God has a plan. Part of the plan was revealed to us for the end of the age. It was revealed in this story. Now, I can see the parallels. I can see the metaphors. I can see the details of the plan. But my understanding of the end is that we're supposed to get this thing resolved about how we treat one another. That in next week's Torah portion, Joseph gets revealed and everybody goes speechless. Well... Carrying through the theme of Joseph representing the Messiah, there is a day coming when the Messiah is going to return. And he really is going to be in charge of the whole world. And I think there's a lot of brethren, even amongst us Messianic brethren, their, their mouths are going to be speechless. Their jaws are going to drop. And as I've always said this, I said, when the Messiah returns, it's going to wreck everybody's theology. You're going to find out that you didn't quite have it right, and the Messiah will come back and correct it. By the way, all of that stuff about the new moon and so forth, he's going to come back and resolve that. That stuff about lunar Sabbath, he'll resolve that. What's the pronunciation of his name? He'll resolve that. He'll take care of that. One law, law for everybody, he'll resolve that. Two house teaching, he'll resolve that. All that stuff will get resolved just fine when he returns. And by the way, as you run down through those lists of all the various issues and so forth, there's going to be a lot of our brethren with their jaws open and speechless. And then he's going to love us.
and he's going to have us draw together to be, have the unity and the fellowship that we we're always supposed to have. And he'll dwell with us and he'll care for us. You know, the end story is that Joseph brings the whole family to him. And the day is coming when Yeshua is going to bring the whole family to him and provide and care for all of us. And we're certainly looking forward to that day. But given this Torah portion, the one thing that I would want you to come away with in this segment is uh, particularly how Joseph uh, reveals unto us how God puts a plan together. How there are really four parts to it. He announces his plan, he explains his plan, he establishes the elements of the plan, and he carries out the plan. And you can take those four principles and apply it to all future prophecies, and you can apply it directly to us for the end time scenario. And as a result, it can give you encouragement and confidence, you know, to hang in there. Be patient like Joseph. It's all going to work out just fine. Um, and even though we don't quite understand all the elements and, and uh, we are caught up in the thing by our own misgivings and misunderstandings and sins, God's still going to be faithful to us. He's still going to fulfill his good word, his promises he made to our fathers, the promise of the promised land. He, he's going to keep his good word. He will not leave us nor forsake us in all of this manner. And that's the one thing that per, should prevail about all of this you know, for us to remember uh, out of that. Again, the stories of our patriarchs, of the fathers. Again, next week, uh, we're going to have where Judah will come and plead the case for Benjamin. And it's one of the tenderest moments in Scripture that we have, one of the most incredible appeals that you'll find in a written form. And uh, it will speak to the mercies of God and the forgiveness of the Messiah even for us. Amen? So let's pray. Father, thank you for this Torah portion. Thank you for the wonderful story of Joseph, the type for the Messiah. I thank you, Lord, again for your Torah. I thank you for these base instructions, these ancient stories that, that always remain fresh. And with its many applications, with its, its deep wisdom to fit into even our lives, even in this day. Thank you for your grace, your mercy, your incredible redemptive plan for mankind. And we look forward to your plan to restore all things to yourself. And we ask, Lord, that you would make us wise under your ways, have an understanding of your plan, so that we might find ourselves in parallel with it, cooperating with it, not being opposed to it, not ignoring it. We ask all of this in the name of Yeshua, our Messiah. Amen. Thank you very much. Shabbat Shalom.
The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.